0: Hello, Josebo! Nihao. welcome to Planet of the Climates. POTK is a Climate Owl podcast, bringing you the latest information and insight into the world of climate action. Clima is a blockchain protocol backed by carbon credits that gives people a chance to fight climate change as a collective. My name is Phaedrus and I'll be your host on this adventure. So for this episode, sadly I'm flying solo. I'm sitting down to chat with Andres Diaz and Marta Poblet. Let's jump right into it. So with this episode, we're sitting down to chat with Andres Diaz and Marta Poblet from the RMIT in Melbourne, Australia. They've recently authored a paper on governance in regenerative finance. It's a fascinating study, but how about we let them explain it to you rather than me? So Marta and Andres, great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Maybe for just a first question, could you take a moment to just introduce yourself, maybe explain a little bit about your background, uh, academic or professional?
1: So my name is Andres Diaz, and I co-authored this academic paper, Along Marta, as part of my PhD journey at the College of Business and Law from RMIT University in Melbourne. So I began this journey in 2019, and I expect to finish in the coming month. My academic background is in economics, and I have postgraduate studies in environmental and energy management, and also corporate finance. Also, I built a professional career as data analyst, and I managed to publish a series of four academic papers as the main author and two complementary ones as co-author. And basically, the theme guiding this set of publications: the governance innovations for climate action enabled by blockchain technology and the technical and institutional opportunities and challenges that stem from these environments and ecosystems. So in particular, the paper that we will be discussing today tries to better understand the governance dynamics shaping the refi ecosystem and the integrity of voluntary carbon markets while considering a perspective from the management of common pool resources. And well, finally, besides being a PhD, full time in front of the computer. I also like to play, you know, video games, going countryside, listen to tunes, watch films. I'm a Liverpool fan. I like to watch the games. So I'm watching the Premier
0: League a lot. Oh, excellent. And congratulations on reaching the home stretch in your PhD. I can relate, I did go through my own doctoral study journey there uh, a few decades back. And I'm sure we can jump into this in some of our questions later, too. But yeah, fascinating work that you're doing there. And congratulations. Marta, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself then.
2: So thanks, Fedoros, for having me as well. My name is Marta Boblet, and I am a professor at RMIT University, a professor in law and technology, the Graduate School of Business and Law. I'm originally from Barcelona, and uh, in Barcelona, I was uh, director of the Institute of Law and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. I've been studying and researching long technology for some years now, since I graduated in my PhD in 2002. And most specifically, perhaps relevant to this podcast, is that at RMIT, we funded in 2018 the Blockchain Innovation Hub with a group of colleagues, institutional economists at RMIT as well. Uh, so it's an interdisciplinary group doing research on the blockchain from different social science uh, and humanities perspectives. So that's where my interest about the blockchain sparked. I mean, I had heard before that, of course, of Bitcoin and blockchain, uh, but by joining the Blockchain Innovation Hub um uh, there was this. And there is still this enthusiasm about all things blockchain and the possibilities and the challenges that decentralized technologies bring to the new landscape of emerging technologies. So when Andres came in 2019, we started working together more specifically on the topics he mentioned, and it's been an adventure ever since. So this paper that we are going to discuss a bit today is the outcome of understanding better how blockchain can underpin energy transitions, and the governance of everything.
0: Oh, excellent. And I guess an underlying thread there is that, you know, sustainability or that regenerative potential. When did that become urgent or important for you to incorporate that aspect into your work?
2: I remember, and Andrés may remember very well, when he arrived in Melbourne, 2019, one of the most well-known and respected Australian economists, Rose Garnaud, had recently published a book called Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity. Paul Garnot is a well-known economist, a policy advisor, a diplomat, a very influential figure in Australian policy with regard to climate change and renewable energy. And I remember highlighting many, many pages in that book and lending it to Andrés, full of Post-it notes, and saying, Andrés, welcome to Australia. I think you have to read this book. First thing, if you want to understand what's happening in Australia, with regard to climate change policies and the background of the last 10 years, because we've been going through different policy perspectives towards climate change, sometimes very active, sometimes quite underwhelming. And Garnot's book explains very well how other countries can benefit from a low-carbon economy. And that's where I understood better how voluntary carbon markets work. And that's where we decided, well, this is a a promising area of research, especially now with the coming of, of the blockchain. So I'm not sure, Andres, if you remember that moment, but to me that was a massive eye-opener.
1: Of course, I remember that book that you lent to me. I think I didn't give it back to you. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah.
2: I didn't want to mention that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yes, yes, of course, I, I do remember but well, in my case, I've been interested in the carbon markets for a decade now. I started studying the carbon markets, I remember, in 2011. I was still a student at the Master in Energy and Environmental Management in at Twente University in the Netherlands. And at that time, I got really fascinated about the complex institutional design of the European Union emission trading system. I got so fascinated with this emission trading system that... In my master's thesis, I focused my investigation on how this emission trading system triggered flows of capital for the investment in cleaner ways of production across Europe, but also in the global south. So from this experience, I think I got a a clearer perspective on the opportunities and challenges that carbon markets were experiencing at that time. And well, about my interest in governance, that started when... Even earlier, when I was undergraduate student of economics in 2009 and I got interested in institutional economic theories, such as the theory of the firm by Oliver Williamson, or institutional change and economic performance by Douglas North, both of them Nobel Prizes. And these authors, broadly speaking, theorize the success or failure of economic phenomena by investigating the complex incentives stemming from formal and informal set of rules that sustain the overall economic activity. So at the core of these rules and incentives emerge concepts such as transaction costs and institutional quality. Basically, as long as the rules and incentives in place promote Let's say entrepreneurship or economic exchange. Transaction costs will be low, and institutional quality will be appropriate. On the contrary, as long as rules and incentives promote other kind of economic activities, such as corporativism or rentism modes of behavior, a transaction costs will be high, and institutional quality will be deficient. That's the idea. So, grounding on this theoretical baggage. The study of governance basically investigates about the rules, the norms, the processes, and the incentives governing and enforcing participation within a community or a market. In other words, the governance here is a key concept to understand economic phenomena through the lens of institutional economics. Well, finally, also, I got interested in blockchain technology much more recently in 2018. One day, I remember that this friend of mine come home and starts talking about cryptocurrency, which for me was all totally new. I had no idea about this world. Then when he's explaining the technology behind these cryptocurrencies, he starts, of course, talking about the blockchain. And he says something like, it's a technology that will allow us to reduce the cost of transaction. And for me, all of a sudden, I associated this sentence with all the theoretical background that I had of institutional economics. And I realized that if this technology works out, it's really capable to systemically reduce transaction costs and improves institutional quality and efficiency. So yeah, it it could be something very important. So that's why I decided when I realized about this, I decided, okay, I need to make a research proposal. And look at this more closely, of course, from my perspective, from what I know, which is economics, you know, renewable energy, energy transitions, and all that's led me to land in Melbourne and work with Marta. Oh, well, fantastic.
0: That's great to hear too, that moment where it clicked for you How about blockchain. I can certainly relate for that. I know a lot of us have been on, you know, different journeys with blockchain, just being on our radar, vaguely understanding Bitcoin and all of that. and. So for you, it was this potential to really, you know, increase efficiencies in governance.
1: Exactly. It just made click to me. And thanks God I found Marta that was looking someone that interested in these kind of topics too, and we could work very well.
2: Yes. To add to what Andres just said, blockchain offers these interesting opportunities for innovation with enhanced distributed networks as securely protected with uh, cryptography to make transactions immutable. But there's also innovations in uh, the way people participate in those networks. What is fascinating to me is that (laughs) blockchains can be understood as well as socio-technical systems, which is in fact a combination of people doing things both on digital platforms, but also offline. And when you have this combination of people doing things both online and offline and using different technologies, there is uh, some sort of a socio-technical system emerging for which the governance rules are not yet clear because it's a new system. And it's a, at the same time, it's a complex system. So there are interactions that, that lead to not necessarily foreseen consequences. And that interaction among complex systems and technology makes this space fascinating. So the innovations that people have tested and still are testing and developing have uh, real consequences for economists, for legal experts, for governance researchers, because technology offers new ways to, to participate in those systems. And we don't fully understand yet how it can be deployed, how it can be enhanced for people to participate.
0: Well, I think that's probably a perfect transition or a segue to actually lean into the paper there too. So for our listeners, it was uh, released just a couple of months ago, Governance of refi Ecosystem and the Integrity of Voluntary Carbon Markets as a Common Resource. So I don't know, Marta or Andres, if you'd like to kind of walk us through the thesis, what was your hypothesis leading into this work and just explain the study and uh, where it ended up
1: going? it basically departs from a governance assessment of the current challenges that voluntary carbon markets and carbon markets in general face nowadays. So from this perspective, the literature shows inefficiencies within voluntary carbon markets that focus on its fragmentation, illiquidity, and multiplicity of standards on one hand, but also the literature focus on some flawed practice like, you know, the expired circulation of carbon credits, the fraudulent schemes and issues with double accounting too. So from this critic standpoint, we can see the questions arising about the factual effectiveness of the voluntary carbon markets as a proper mechanism to reduce emissions. So. A better governance in this space would mean greater effectiveness for reducing emissions, of course, a better transparency for tracking efforts and results, and yeah, and a legitimacy across participants that build together this space. So I think that for this, it is fundamental to find the mechanism for tracing emissions, flows that allow us to guarantee the avoidance of double accounting and, of course, complying with the international agreed accounting requirement. You know, having a clearer view of what's going on about the current challenges that voluntary carbon markets face nowadays, we focus on understanding the potential role of blockchains in this realm. And in a nutshell, blockchains emerge in the carbon market literature as a novel and flexible technology for the robust accounting of carbon markets procedures, including the issuance and trading of carbon credits. So this robustness is associated with the capability for building trustable infrastructure for accounting, basically. These opportunities materialize in a unique transparent database provided by the blockchain which is capable of tracking assets, exchange flows, and mitigation outcomes. So having a clearer picture of the challenges of current carbon markets and the potential of blockchains, we intended to explore and better understand the goals, scope, and intended outcomes of emerging projects in the refi ecosystem. It's a series of case studies, right, that do a deep dive on the governance. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So for this purpose, we gather public information from Refi DAO, which is a kind of repository of projects within the ReFi space, and we found around 180 projects providing a myriad of solutions associated with carbon emissions, accounting, and carbon markets. And of course, it will be impossible to scrutinize all these 180 projects. So we screened them by availability for public documentation, you know, such as white papers to better understand the dynamics shaping this ecosystem. So from this screening, we saw that the innovation is not so scattered, but it's really concentrated in a few key projects that serve as base layer and open source platforms. And this makes it easier for developers around the globe to leverage on such open source base layers as templates and from their provider on customized solution. So maybe that's why we have seen these exponential growths of the ReFi ecosystem in recent years. Oh, excellent. So for
0: our listeners, I mean, I'm kind of cheating here too, but I know in your case studies, you're Looking at a lot of, you know, our ecosystem and some of the big players that our listeners are likely familiar with, like Tucan Protocol, obviously Regen Foundation, Moss, and of course climate uh, Climadao itself there too. So I'm curious, you know, what were some of the findings that jumped out at you or perhaps might have been unexpected findings that you did not expect to see?
2: I think we were struck first by by the sheer number of initiatives, <laughs> nearly two hundred. So the effervescence of the REFI ecosystem, we found it quite incredible. And so when we narrowed down to a few cases that exemplify how this system evolves, we were also struck by the nimble character of the initiatives and the modularity of the projects, that uh, they can be considered as interdependent in a way. So... That can be integrated. I think that was a a fascinating example of modularity in the ReFi ecosystem to have all these projects uh, that could somehow not just learn from each other, but build on each other. And that's, I think, one of the strengths of ReFi. And then the governance systems that tend to be similar, based on both informal and formal mechanisms. Discussions on Discord as informal mechanisms, then leading to more formal proposals that get voted. So this is a bit across the space. Everyone has its own particularities, of course, but that way of building governance is quite interesting.
1: Yes. Well, we find out what are the basic solutions that these developments are providing. So. We've seen, and that's something that is very interesting, the idea of bridging current credit issuance from standard-setting organizations such as Ver or the gold standard with the blockchain-based market ecosystem via tokenization in order to provide more liquidity into the markets. And I think that's something really interesting you are doing. Also, as I mentioned, the second solution will be providing this digital infrastructure for accounting, issuing, and trading only within the blockchain. And third will be the linking, the demand of carbon credits from individuals or corporations with the supply that Klima has a lot of of experience on that. So based on those solutions, I think it was very interesting to understand how the governance process also work. As Marta mentioned briefly, the voting mechanisms and the proposals, which are very characteristic of proof of stake kind of dynamics of governance. So... It was very interesting to see all the developments you're doing in governance in that space. That's
0: great to see. And I think that kind of also underscores some of those similar mechanisms and decision-making that happens across our organizations. I think, Marta, you touched on there that fact that it's, you know, positive and enforcing and sharing best practices. And I think a term that some of our team have used too is that uh, coopetition, I guess, right? Like you're we're competing, this is a, a nascent growing burgeoning space, but we can't go it alone. And this is a something we're all hands on deck when it comes to tackling the climate crisis and when it comes to addressing these inefficiencies that you've also you know documented in the voluntary carbon market.
2: Yeah, that's right. And one interesting aspect that captured our interest was to what extent we can analyze this with a common-based resource perspective. And that's basically the work of Nobel Prize Eleanor Ostrom and her team
0: for our, our listeners, I think you know a lot of them would have heard expressions like tragedy of the commons is one that's out there that people would understand. I don't know if you could just take a moment because you referenced obviously uh, Eleanor Ostrom there and this idea of Ostrom compliance that gets referenced many times in your paper too. Could you unpack that a little bit? What do we mean when we say you know uh, commons or common pool resources?
2: This idea of tragedy of, of the commons comes from paper by Hardy in 1968 where his hypothesis was, or his main tenet was, common-based pool resources, uh, pastures, uh, fisheries, this kind of natural resources, suffered the tragedy of the commons by over-exploitation of the resources. And that's basically the tragedy that Hardy highlighted in, in managing these uh, communal resources. What Ostrom uh, instead showed with her research was that, in fact, when managed properly, resources do not necessarily lead to overexploitation and can thrive. And she showed that with her team with a number of uh, examples across the wall of pastures, fisheries, forestries uh, that were sustainably managed. So we claim that uh, the voluntary carbon, carbon markets and the refi ecosystem can equally be uh, successfully managed as a common base pool resource. And there are elements for that to happen, not just the carbon market in itself, but the digital infrastructure that the ReFi ecosystem is building can also be conceived as a common base infrastructure, even though there is this aspect of competition and cooperation that you mentioned before. But for this to happen, design principles, such as having clear boundaries, having rules that people can build and self-management rules, having enforcement mechanisms for these rules, having conflict resolution systems in place. These kind of principles, uh, she formulated up to eight principles, probably need to be taken into account when thinking of how sustainable long-term the ecosystem of refi is going to be. And we've discussed that lengthy and we keep discussing because it's a very open question, actually how to efficiently govern the ReFi ecosystem, it's work in progress.
1: Yeah, basically, so the ReFi and all these blockchain environment ecosystem comes from a idea of self-organization and self-sufficiency, let's say, in many aspects. So we took the idea of the commons because we understand that governance needs to be taken into account to build their own communities and for this to grow and to make it sustainable they have to have some root on some theoretical background and we found that on the commons as marta mentioned there are many principles about the commons that we can see reflected and some others that are still a work in progress and that's i think that the most important thing that to see that there is this intention to move in this kind of direction and there is a potential to do this. Especially when we understand that the technology is still in the very early days and there is plenty of room to keep growing.
0: I think that's just a brilliant insight or a brilliant twist when people think about those commons. Marta, as you were explaining, like they do think about, you know, our oceans, our natural resources, our natural environment that we've unfortunately, you know, neglected and squandered in many ways but then applying that regenerative finance itself that's this growing movement and the voluntary carbon market itself is a common pooled resource as well too maybe a big question here too and you've probably already spoken to it in several ways but why does governance matter when it comes to tackling climate change why should they care about governance
2: Well, that's my bias as a legal (laughs) scholar, probably. Governance is important everywhere, not just in climate change. But especially in such a Mm. complex problem, such as climate change, is having governance mechanisms at different levels, local, regional, national, supranational, is critical. We are tackling a very complex issue, and it requires not just economic incentives, but it also requires rules, and it requires institutions. And again, these institutions can be operating at different levels. And then it requires coordination among these different institutions. So you start seeing that if you want to tackle a problem that manifests at so many levels, creates the need for having regulatory frameworks at those different levels as well, and the coordination mechanisms so that you don't create inefficiencies and other shortcomings that would affect the goals, the targets that you want to reach. I think climate change is a beautiful example of why we need governance and why governance is not something hampering innovation but on the opposite, but governance is a way to enable innovation if done properly. If you have the incentives in place, the regulations in place, the institutions that coordinate those levels, then you can trigger the innovation mechanisms that are most needed to tackle this problem as well, not just technological levels, but also regulatory levels. That's my take on why having the governance right from the very inception, including for those, it's super important. That will guarantee the robustness of the organizations themselves. So having some time to think about carefully what are your governance mechanisms, it may be tricky initially, but long term it pays off because it makes the organization more robust.
1: I mean, it's a very good question. I think that sometimes there is a reductionist understanding that issues of climate change, energy transitions of carbon markets will be solved by simply introducing new technologies. However, in real life, the deployment and adoption of any technology depends on the willingness and ableness of people and societies at a larger extent to act. And sometimes people need to act on nonlinear processes, and contested processes. So it is important to understand this from a governance perspective. So I think that when this is not taken into account, we can overlook and sometimes even perpetuate uneven power relations and injustices, and in this way, overlooked impacts on certain groups or communities. So... I think that if we intend to build a new generation of voluntary carbon markets or energy systems or whatever, to be effective and sustainable over time, it is the to look at this governance nuisance so we can contribute towards more legitimate processes and fairer designs from bottom-up perspectives.
0: So I think generally speaking, I think regenerative finance or that the refi movement that you've examined here in your paper, it's fair to say that it's still a very new space and a new process and a new approach to that governance side of the coin there. I'm just curious from your observations outside of this paper or otherwise, what have you seen so far in that regenerative finance movement? What gives you hope and what perhaps are some of the biggest barriers to success?
2: As I said before, I think what gives me hope is the potential for innovation and the sheer enthusiasm of a new generation of people being fully aware of the threat of climate change, but at the same time, being able to test, to experiment new technologies, leading towards new forms of governance as well. So the potential for innovation is one of the things that gives me hope in that space because, again, it brings together people with technology and capabilities to tackle this problem. The challenges are there, obviously, and to some extent they are governance challenges. When people get stuck in discussions, disputes on how to do this better, and disputes about the continuity of those institutions on how they should evolve will be part of the landscape. And it's healthy to have these discussions, but at the same time, it's important how do we evolve and which mechanisms for monitoring what we are doing or for resolving our conflicts when they emerge are important. And I would say none of these is um, an impediment for DAOs to thrive in that space and how it can be fully integrated, not just as a refi ecosystem, but in the broader institutional ecosystem of carbon markets and go from maybe minority or fringe technology into something more mainstream. And I think that's one of the goals that DAOs should be invested in,
0: Excellent. Yeah. So for me anyways, that really illustrates that it's not just about technology that's going to save us. It's not just about the tools, but how can the governance accelerate that adoption? Andres, your thoughts there on perhaps through this
1: work, what's given you the most hope? From what I've seen is that there is a change of philosophy that goes, instead of competition, we're talking about what you were talking before, collaboration. So I think that this is very promising because it's a change of philosophy. And the change of philosophy may have impact in all the rest, technology, governance, and all that. And that's promising for me.
0: Yeah, so th- thank you so much for walking us through your paper there. And I would, we'll definitely include a link for our listeners to go check it out and read it for themselves because I do think it's an eye-opener and important read for anybody trying to work in the area of regenerative finance or just curious about these novel solutions and novel governance approaches to uh, implementing solutions to climate change.
2: The paper you can read at the moment, it's been submitted to a journal. The final version might be looking different, so we expect comments from reviewers, and we expect comments from anyone who wants to tell us any points you can make on the paper. It's still a work in progress, so we'll, we'll be happy to reflect on those comments as well from <laughs> crowdsourced reviewers, and we expect to share a final version as soon as possible.
0: Excellent. Great to hear Definitely appreciate uh, Andreas and Marta, both of you, for the work that you're doing and looking at you know, governance and the importance of that in regenerative finance and what we're doing in this DAO world and the DAO journey that we're on together. So thank you again, both of you, so much for your
1: time. Thank you again for the invitation, for giving us the opportunity to share this space.
2: Thank you so much for, for having us. It's great.
1: Bye-bye.
0: excellent. So I hope listeners that you enjoyed that conversation. I sure enjoyed chatting with Marta and Andreas there. One of the things that really stuck out to me was this idea that I think we often talk about our natural resources as being the commons and how these have been neglected and mismanaged and poorly governed. And then what they're doing with their paper here at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology is they're flipping that on its head and saying, well, the actual solutions there, are the voluntary carbon market and the regenerative finance space that we're all working in here at Clean These are common pool resources as well, too, and how they're governed matters and how they're governed impacts the ultimate change that we can make in tackling the climate crisis. So I thought that was just a brilliant twist. And if you do have a chance, please do take the time to check out their paper. That is, again, a work in progress. They do welcome feedback. They welcome engagement. They welcome comments and discussion on it. And it sure has been an eye opener for us here at Klimadel, I believe, as well. As always, you can help this podcast reach even more climates by leaving a comment or a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For everything Clima, make sure you're hitting up Finance, where you can find every POTK episode and, most importantly, leave your very own love letter to the planet and help us fight climate change. That's it from us. We look forward to connecting with you once again on the very next Planet of the Climates.